Bibles out this morning, amen. We're going to be uh, in the book of Micah. With all this wind here, I'm going to be in Micah chapter 7. I want to read to you uh, verses 1 through 7. If you'll have a word from the Lord for you this morning to encourage you and strengthen you. And uh, how many are thankful for the word of God in this season that it's a, a, a foundation for us to be able to stand on it, to stand strong. Amen. Blessed be the rock of my salvation. Amen. Father, we just thank you this morning that you love us and that as we open up your word and we look at what the prophet Micah had to say and understand that the implications of what the prophets have written are for our time as well as for times past. They're multidimensional, God. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit to open the word up to us today for us to see the application to our current situation. We are thankful, Lord, that we're your children, that you love us, that we're safe in your hands, that we're on the rock of Jesus Christ, that we can come together as brothers and sisters and take communion together and fellowship together. And Father, I'm thankful that we are approaching the time where we'll be able to go back into your holy sanctuary and worship together before the altar, Lord, but we know that the church is not a building, and the word has sustained us and proved who we are. We thank you for it in Jesus' name, and the church said, let me hear some horns. Anybody got horns this week? All right. All right, here it is, the Micah chapter 7. The title of this message is Cutting Through the Confusion, and I want you to listen to this, this text here, these seven verses, and then I'm going to go through them verse by verse, and we're going to give some running commentary and allow the Holy Spirit to show us how these things are relevant to us today. Micah chapter 7, starting in verse 1, he says this, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat, or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among us. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts others with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks and also the judge for a bribe. A great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. For her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For a son treats his father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law, her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. God, in verse 7, God gives us the source of salvation and what the righteous should be doing in times of confusion. It says, but as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Today, as we look all around us and see the world in a mess, and we see much confusion, 
I want to encourage you today that God is not taken aback by anything that has occurred in these last months, but he is fully in control. 2020 has been an eventful year thus far. Can I say amen? And when I say eventful, I mean it's been a continuous rapid succession of uncomfortable things, of uncharted things, of confusing things. Most people can't seem to make heads or tails of what's going on in the moment, why it's happening, or even what's coming next. And there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of confusion. But we, have, we as Christians don't have to have all the answers, but we need to know these three things. Number one, our God is in complete control. Amen. Our God is in control of the heavens and the earth. He's in control of every heartbeat, of every life. He's in control. He provides our needs. He's not uh, uh, somehow in heaven reeling from these situations thinking, what shall I do next? They're not calling an emergency meeting in heaven. Our God is in control. He has this world in his hands. Number two, the second thing we've got to know in the midst of confusion and that these things, whether we understand them or not, are all pieces of God's prophetic puzzle that are falling into place. You say, well, look at history. History is his story. History is his design. He is weaving together the tapestry of history according to his prophetic plan, and he is in full control. Number three, we can count on this. Our God will always be gracious. He will always be just. And he will always be faithful to his people. Can I hear an amen this morning? So in the confusion, many are reeling. And you say, Pastor, how are you doing? And I'll tell you this. I don't know all the answers, but I'm doing good. And you say, well, why? Here's why. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds my future. And you can count on him. You can count on him. You can rely on him. He's the rock of our salvation. So there's confusion. In Micah 7, we just read these verses here. The prophet Micah, he highlights the spiritual state of Israel. And he justifies the, the, the judgment that is impending for that nation. Because there's times of tumultuous things had overcome them. Verses 1 through 6 of Micah sound very eerily familiar to our current situation. That nation was in fear. Impending judgment was coming upon it. And I want you to see that there are many things that are said here that apply perfectly to what the times we are living in now. I'm going to break down the first six verses and give you a running commentary of them. And the, in verse 7, I'm going to give you three points of what a Christian is supposed to do in the midst of confusion. Let's look at verse 1 here. It says this, What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. Listen to this. There is no cluster of grapes to eat. There are no early figs that I crave. A picture of a, a husbandman going out to tend the vines, yet there's no fruit there. And he says, "What? I, I yearn for the grapes. I yearn, I crave for the early figs, but they're not there. This is a description of spiritual frustration in the hearts of the righteous. You see, as righteous people, we should look around at the things that are going around in our world and be frustrated with it because it is not the design of God. It's the sinfulness of man that has created these things. This description of going out to have fruit and going out to find the grapes and going out to find the figs and then 
Craving them but not having them shows the desire of the righteous. The righteous desire for the good things of God to touch the kingdoms of this world. The righteous desire for the kingdom of heaven to be established on the kingdom of earth. Yet, but what we see is injustice and unrighteousness and the wickedness of sin and the effects of sin on our generation. And our hearts are frustrated. And if we are righteous, we look around and we yearn to see God touch where we're wounded. Yet, more and more, we see the effects of sin and we cry out to God in frustration, God, heal our land. Verse 2, it says, The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. You see, in times of conquest, Israel, in that period of history, people were literally snatched up and removed out of the lands and whisked away into exile. And here the prophet is saying that the generation has become thoroughly wicked and the righteous have been removed. Today, we are not plucked up from our culture. The righteous are still here. We are the body of Jesus Christ in the earth. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit in the earth. Come on, church. The righteous remnant is still in the land. But have we been silenced? Our culture has silenced us. We've been deemed by our culture as non-essential, and nothing can be further from the truth. We've been deemed by those who govern as non-essential, but nothing could be further from the truth. We've been silenced by our own timidity. We've been silenced by our own lack of integrity. And so though the righteous remnant exists in the land, we have been silenced to a degree. And I want to encourage you today, the time for the church to be the church is upon us. The time for our mouths to be open and to be filled with the righteous word of God is upon us. The faithful have been swept from the land, but the righteous remnant is still on the earth. It's time for us to stand up past our timidity, to have integrity, and to be able to speak to our generation that there is a God who hears and loves and saves. The latter half of verse 2 and verse 3 says this, Everyone lies in wait to shed blood, to hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled at doing evil. Now, I hope by this point you're, you're realizing a lot of this should sound familiar to us. When we hear what? Everyone lies in wait to shed blood, to hunt each other with nets. Man against man, kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation. They are skilled at doing evil. Micah describes a generation here. He gives us a snapshot of them. They had given themselves over to lawlessness. Now, I hope this sounds familiar to you because we have a lot of lawlessness in our nation, a lot of lawlessness in the hearts of men. And he's saying here, everyone was skilled at doing evil with both hands. Could you imagine becoming so good at wickedness, you could do it ambidextrously. You could do it easily, reflexively. A picture of a people that need repentance. A picture of a people who need to come back to God. The prophet continues in the latter half of verse 3 and verse 4. Listen to this. He says, the ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate their desires, and they all conspire together. What Micah was describing here, he says in verse 4, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. What he was describing here was systemic corruption, throughout the governing structure of Israel. Now, I hope this sounds familiar to you in our generation at this moment. 
The ruler demands a gift. The judge accepts a bribe. The powerful dictate their desires. They all conspire together. How fitting for us to consider the words of the prophet as he spoke to Israel and the systemic corruption of Israel because they had strayed from God. You see, we don't have a problem with politics. We don't have a Democrat-Republican problem. We don't have a black-white problem. We don't have a rich-poor problem. We have those who are lost and in the dark and those who are found who are in Jesus Christ. It's a darkness and light problem. And the answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. It's not more legislation. It's not more rules. It's not lawlessness. It's Jesus. Verses 5 and 6 are a shocker. He says, do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even for the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the member of his own household. This is a shocker to us as in Israel, the the. The, the prophet takes a snapshot of the collective heart of the nation, and he's saying the, those who are of the closest relationships, mother, daughter, father, son, uh, all of these things, they will betray each other. Why? Because in times of darkness and confusion, it's every man for himself, and there's no loyalty. And I want you to understand that we must learn to rely on the Lord. We must learn to rely on the goodness of God. We must learn to rely on the true body of Christ and the unity that God has put there in us. If we try to lean on anything else, it will crumble underneath us. It will not support us. These verses here point us to a spiritual condition that was in the nation of Israel that are the nations of the earth now. They reflect this very period and it is ripe. It is the time for us to look to the heavens and to watch carefully for his coming For the stage is set and the hearts of men have cast the die and we must watch for the coming of the Lord. Verse 7 gives instruction to the people of God. Everything I described to you in the first six verses are the condition of the world. Verse 7 says what the people of God should do, how we should respond to the confusion that is all around us. Listen to verse 7. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Short and powerful. I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Micah gives us the response of the righteous in times of confusion. And the first response we must make is this. We shouldn't be confused. We should be watching for the return of the Lord. Let me hear your horns today. Now, Jesus said he was coming back. Scripture is very clear. Yet to the world, this is crazy talk that we would say we're waiting for the return of Jesus. They would say it's a cop out that we should solve our own problems. But the truth is there are some things that will not fall into place until Jesus puts them in place. So we watch for his return. The prophet says, I watch in the hope for the Lord, that great hope that Jesus will return, that Jesus will snatch away his church, that Jesus will rule the nations in righteousness and in honesty and integrity. Remember verse 4 that we just covered here? God's visitation to the people 
created a sudden panic. He's like, you set your watchman, but what the Lord returns and then you're not ready for it. It's a picture of the fact that much of our world is not ready for the return of Christ. Much of the church is not ready for the return of Christ. We need to get in a situation where we can bring our hearts before the Lord so that we are made ready. The bridegroom is coming. Is there oil in your lamp? The bridegroom is coming. Are you watching for him? The bridegroom is coming. Has sin been driven from your life? Hallelujah. Because people in that day, as Micah is prophesying, had tuned out the prophets. They weren't listening. They were considered non-essential. People in that day were totally engrossed in doing their own thing. And I hope that sounds familiar to you because that is the calling card of our generation. People in that day were not watching for the Lord's return, for the judgment of God to visit them. And they were shocked when it came. How does this apply to the New Testament church? Well, we were told in Acts 1 that Jesus would return the way he left. It says this, as he said this, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going and suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go. And so Jesus gives us a model of his return. He left by going up He's going to come back down and receive his bride. We've been told to watch for his coming in Matthew 24, 41. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. The scripture shows us it's a surprise return. Some will not be ready. We've been told that his return would be quick and it would be sudden. It would be shocking to many. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3 for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Like the labor pains upon a woman with child, there will be no escape. These words should sober us up as a church. We should be living ready for the return of the Lord. You know, before we had memes and Facebook and social media, all we had was bumper stickers. Who remembers? Amen. Maybe some of you old school people are still rolling around with bumper stickers. And I remember seeing a bumper sticker that made me laugh as a young man. It said, Jesus is coming back. Look busy. You know, that's funny because we can all relate to that to some degree. You know, when we're supposed to be doing something and we're not, and we're supposed to be busy doing something, the boss walks in, nobody's working. Mom and dad are on their way home. The house is a disaster. The chores aren't done. And we're in a panic, shuffling to try and get things put back together. It's funny, but it gives a, a powerful question that stirs up in our soul. What do we want Jesus to find us doing when he returns? I don't know about you, but I want to be busy doing kingdom things. Uh, it's funny. Our generation is busy buying and selling, marrying and uh, creating wealth, but yet not watching for the coming of God. Do we want Jesus to come back, see us as a church struggling with the same old sins in the same old way? When he comes back, 
do we want him to find us taking it easy with our feet kicked up or carrying our weight? Or do we want him to find us arguing with people on social media? What do we want to be doing when Jesus comes back? We want to be carrying our own cross. We want to be doing his will. We want to be saving souls and making disciples. That's what the church needs to be doing in times of confusion. Hallelujah. So he's coming back, and I hope you're watching for his coming. To us, it's a warning to sober up, to live right, to tighten up. To the world, it's crazy talk, but the world is perishing, and we must speak the truth in love. We must bring the light to the darkness and tell them there is a Jesus who loves them. Number two, don't be confused. Here's our second response. We should wait to see the salvation of our Lord. The prophet Micah says, I wait for God, my Savior. Now remember, this is Old Testament. The cross hasn't even happened yet. Yet Micah is preaching forward to the cross. He's looking forward to it. That salvation would be granted to all those who call upon the name of the Lord through Jesus. He says, I wait for God, my Savior. Now, there's an ultra common theme in the world. And it's that man can save the world. In fact, if you watch TV or you watch movies or you read books, this theme of man saving the world is a very common theme. And I want to give you a little news flash this morning. Man cannot save the world. Amen. And I'll tell you why he can't, because all of us are sinners in need of a savior. Man can't save the world and the world doesn't need to be saved because Jesus has already saved it. Amen. Salvation is available to all. Jesus said on the cross, it was finished. He wasn't being dramatic. He was being serious. It is finished. He saved the world. He's brought salvation to the world. Man can't save the world. Yet the prophet says, I wait for God, my Savior. Right now, we are in the place of waiting to see everything that Jesus did on the cross take full effect upon creation. We are in the stopgap period of waiting to see the implementation of everything Jesus did. Honestly, the wait can be hard because the wait is long. And it will not be completed until Jesus rules and reigns in the millennium. So we wait for the coming of the Lord. And we wait for him to save. And we wait for him to restore the nations. Isaiah, he captures the essence of what we're waiting for. Isaiah said in... Uh, 42.16, he says this, I will bring the blind by the way that they knew not. I will lead them into the paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them. I will make crooked things straight. These things I will do unto them and not forsake them. This is what we're waiting for today. We're waiting for God to open blind eyes. We're waiting for God to bring light into the darkness. We're waiting for God to make the crooked things straight. God will straighten out the crooked things. He will straighten out the injustices. He will settle the score of the unbalanced scales. We wait for him to bring salvation. While we are waiting, we need to understand something. Our waiting is not a passive wait. It's an active wait. God doesn't expect us to circle the wagons and just wait for Jesus to come and do nothing. But we have to be active while we're waiting, not passive. What does that mean? It means we must occupy until he comes. 
The church must push back the darkness. The church must push back the darkness with light. We must occupy till he comes. We should be three things. Number one, a beacon of hope and a wellspring of love. The church should be the agent in the earth that brings love to all people. And it should be a beacon of hope that those can come in and find hope in Jesus Christ. We should also create a haven of peace and restoration where broken souls can come in and be restored. The world needs hope. The world is broken. The world is chained in sin. The world is torn down by addiction and by hatred and all of these things that afflict the souls of men. Yet the church needs to be a haven where we can bring people in so that they can find peace and be restored. We need to bring the lost souls in. Listen to me, church. A pastor can't do it all by himself. We all need to do the work of an evangelist. We all need to preach the gospel. We all need to fulfill the Great Commission. Make disciples. Make disciples. Bring them to church. Share these messages with them. You say, well, I don't think they'll understand it. Trust the Holy Spirit to get in there and to hook their hearts and to draw them to the truth. Hallelujah. Don't be confused. We should be waiting for the salvation of the Lord. Number three, I'll close with this. Don't be confused. Our third response in times of conflict. Well, that sounds like a nice engine right there. God bless it. Don't be confused. Number three, we should be confident in our connection to the Lord. Look what the prophet says. He says, my God will hear me. It's a very dark place to be when the weight of the world is crushing down on us and we're not sure if the God of heaven and earth can even hear our cries. You see, there are many people who are crushed by the things of this world and they don't know if God in heaven can actually hear them. But Micah was very clear. He said, my God will hear me. Now listen, communication requires that both parties hear. If you're married, you know the greatest thing your spouse wants is to be heard. Not just to have problems solved or not just to discuss plans, but to be heard. Communication requires two-way hearing. People say things like this. God doesn't hear my prayer. God doesn't hear my cries. God didn't hear me when I reached out to him. And they're implying in some way that the communication breakdown is on God's part. But listen to me. God is not hard of hearing. God can still hear the cries of the righteous. God still hears the cries of his children. People say God doesn't hear me and imply the problem is his. But it's never on his side that the communication breaks down. It's on our side. That reminds me of a story of a couple who was in their 90s, and they had been married for decades, and they always argued about which one of them was hardest of hearing because they couldn't communicate with each other. It had become such a bone of contention that this elderly couple, the husband had had it and decided to prove once and for all that it was his wife who could not hear. While his wife was reading in the living room, he said in a loud voice, Dear, would you like a cup of tea? Yet there was no response. He went into the next room and he said in a louder voice, Dear, would you like a cup of tea? Still no response. He creeps back into the living room. He gets right behind her chair and he says, Dear, would you like a cup of tea? 
At this point, she stands up and she looks annoyed and she says to him, for the third time, yes, I would like a cup of tea. You see, sometimes we think it's everybody else, but it's us. Sometimes we think it's God, but it's us. Sometimes we want to put the blame wherever we can, but it's us. And the only thing that needs to change is us. God, help us to hear you. God is not hard of hearing. If you're married to him, he hears you. If you're in relationship with him through Jesus Christ, he hears you. At the end of the chapter here, at the end of the section here in verse 7, Micah makes a declaration that bristles with confidence. And I want to close with this. He says, my God will hear me. I hope that your communication with God is wide open, is crystal clear. If it's not, it's time for us to get on our knees in the secret place and to cry out to him until we hear him, until we hear his reply. Because he hasn't quit speaking. He's still on the throne. He's still in charge. He's still speaking to his people. He still hears our cries. And in times of confusion, we must know that we can hear him. Today, church, I hope that you're encouraged I hope that you understand that God is on the throne and that he has not forsaken us, that even in our confusion, in our exhaustion, he hears us. We need to be watching for his return. We need to be waiting for his salvation to make the crooked things straight. And we need to be confident that he can hear us and we can hear him. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, I thank you this morning for this group, for your church, for this body. I pray, Lord God, that in times of confusion, we would be crystal clear in what we are to do, that our response would be to look for your coming, to wait for your salvation, and to communicate with you, that you would speak to us and use us in times of this to be agents of change and peace and hope, that you would use us to bring the gospel to the broken and to make disciples out of men to be the church, to fulfill the great commission, and to be salt and light in the earth. I pray it in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Let's give him praise this morning. Hallelujah. I'm caught up in your presence. I just want to sit here.